pray. It is no small thing, our Father, that we are gathered together here today, sitting before your word, asking that your spirit would come and move in such a way in our hearts that would wake us up from our slumber and our comforts. And we praise you for the comforts in Christ. We praise you for the blessing, the material blessings that we have in this life. But, oh, Father, we pray that you would enable us and put a desire in our hearts to do more than simply enjoy the comforts, but rather, Father, that we, like those who have gone before us, would be willing to take risks for the glory of Christ day to day so that the gospel would advance, and so that our churches would grow deep, and so that the world will hear of the resurrected Christ, the mystery of the Old Testament. And Father, we ask this with trembling in our hearts and with a great desire to be found pleasing to you today. So help us. Help us, I pray, Lord. Protect us from error. Fill us with your spirit and with a holy zeal to represent Christ well in this world. Be glorified in us now, Father, as we listen and as I preach. For we ask it in the name, name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I should tell you from the start that my goal this morning is to provoke some of you, perhaps I hope many of you, for fear of overstating the case, at least some of you, to a holy dissatisfaction with how you live the Christian life and how we as a church function as a church. And don't get me wrong here, I love Calvary Bible Church. And I love what God does in our midst. I love how he blesses us. I love how his spirit regenerates, redeems, and rescues sinners even when we gather as he apparently did just last week. I love being a member of this church. It's a tremendous gift from the Lord, but I think Calvary Bible Church can also be a dangerously comfortable place for Christians. This church, this body of believers, whether you are sitting on a hard pew are in the comfortable chairs down the hall. They may struggle with this down there more than you. When I say that our church may be dangerously comfortable, what I mean is that if you're not careful, you, we, might let God's apparent favor on us become the cause of an inflated opinion about our spiritual maturity. Inflated unnecessarily and to our peril. 
As I recall the past 25 years here, I can say with confidence that God has sharpened our understanding of the word. And when I say our, I think all of you who have been here, and and certainly me. He's sharpened our understanding of the word. He's deepened our commitment to the truth. He has, to a significant degree, taught us how to minister the word of God to one another like never before. And we have become, I think, a more loving church because of it. We have become a church-planting church. We have grown in our concern for the nations. And I would submit to you today that we need to kindle that flame afresh. And I think we love Jesus more. I think we love Jesus more. But oh, when I study a passage like the one before us this morning, I can't help but come away day after day in my study believing that I am but a child compared to what God wants me to be. One thing we lack as individuals and as a church body, I think, is a biblical understanding of how God uses personal suffering to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I say he uses personal suffering, I am not primarily thinking of the kind of suffering that's brought on by sickness and disability or disease or financial pressure, although God is magnificently glorified in those occasions when you respond to such suffering well. This is not to in any way minimize the glory of God in the lives of believers as they suffer from illness and loss. Rather, I'm talking about a kind of suffering that comes as a direct result of taking personal risk for the advancement of the gospel, for the cause of Christ and the good of his church. The point of this passage, as I see it, this passage that lies before us, is that Paul rejoices in the suffering that came upon him for proclaiming Jesus as the mystery of the Old Testament. Now, we're not going to get into the mystery of the Old Testament until next week. But this is what was the source of all, at least most, of Paul's troubles. Paul knew that God had laid on him a calling to proclaim that Jesus is the only Savior. And we know that God has called on us to proclaim to man, to men and women and children, to neighbors, to friends, to enemies, that Jesus is man's only Savior. As Paul went about doing things to fulfill his calling, People often responded in a negative and hostile way, as we learned again afresh in Sunday school this morning. As we strive to fulfill our calling, we too will encounter people who will not love us for talking to them about Jesus. They won't love us any more than they love the Apostle Paul. The difference, however, between Paul and many of us is that Paul viewed risk-taking that leads to suffering for Christ's sake 
as normative to the Christian life. That is, he believed that it is normal to be rejected in your presentation of Christ or in your life as people view it, as he has shaped it. He believed it to be even a mark of God's favor on his life that he suffered. We, on the other hand, tend to think of suffering primarily as a sign of God's displeasure. Witness the friends of Job. In these modern times, we think, we think of relational risk-taking on behalf of Christ as, I think, if, just be honest with yourself for a moment. When you see somebody doing that, is your first thought, I've got to pray for him, God bless him. He's doing a wonderful thing. Or are you, in your heart, thinking that that's insensitive? It's impolite. It's pushy. Perhaps even fanatical. I mean, good Christians in our day don't proselytize. We're beyond that. We don't bring up religion in polite conversation. And if we do, the suffering we receive is considered deserved, and perhaps even shameful. Brothers and sisters, this ought not to be true of us. Now, with those happy thoughts in mind, if you would join me in looking at our text for the week, let's stand together and read Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Let me offer you a summary of this passage as we set things up. The key word here, I believe, is sufferings. I think every pastor, every evangelical pastor anyway, who desires to get the message right, will look at this as I did and as so many that I've read in the past couple of weeks, you, you immediately want to jump to Christ in you. And I found myself, even before studying it, just writing the title, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But that is not the main thing here. It may be the most glorious thing, but it's not the main thing that Paul 
is pointing us to. Paul's talking about his personal suffering on behalf of Christ and his church. Witness the end of verse 24. The specific ministry he has in mind is that of preaching the gospel, which he refers to as the mystery, namely that the Old Testament promises of the coming Messiah have been fulfilled in Jesus. And everywhere Paul went, that's what he did. He tried to explain and convince people that that is true. Not that Jesus suddenly appeared in disregard of the Old Testament, but rather in fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had said about the coming Messiah. It was just misunderstood. It was just avoided. People were ignorant. And it was a mystery. Paul's bold, unrelenting proclamation of the gospel, as you know, resulted only, not only in many receiving the gift of eternal life, but also Paul himself receiving an enormous amount of rejection. And not just rejection, but pain and deadly bodily injury, more than any of us can possibly imagine. None of us will experience this. Pretty safe to say. When he mentions his suffering to the Colossians, he describes his response in two words. His response to his suffering. Listen to these two words. Are you ready? When you think of your suffering, are these the two words that come to mind? You already know what the words are, right? I rejoice. I rejoice. Now, I only have two points to cover this morning, and though the text we read goes all the way through verse 29, we're really only going to look at the first verse. Um, it's been a while since I've only preached on one verse. It's been even longer since I've preached on one word, but we'll, we'll just preach on one verse this week. And here are the two points. Number one, Paul was called to take risks and suffer joyfully with Christ. Point number two, this is very simple, not very clever. We are called to take risks and suffer joyfully with Christ. Let's begin with verse 24. He writes to the church of Colossae, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Now that one statement should startle us because we know Paul's strategy for advancing the gospel and strengthening the church. We know his strategy. Randy described it this morning beautifully out of um, Acts chapter 17. What was his strategy? Well, we see it all the way back at the beginning of his ministry, right after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, he goes into Damascus blind, remember. And having had his sight restored by Ananias, Paul is baptized by the believers who were already there when, when, uh, Paul, when Saul got there. And the reason they were there was because of something Saul did previous to that, namely, he participated in the stoning of Stephen, which caused all the Christians to scatter and a significant contingent of those Christians found their way to Damascus. 
When Paul gets there, he meets Jesus. He is converted. He's also blinded. God sends, the Lord sends Ananias to restore his sight. He's baptized there in Damascus. And in Acts 9, 20, he says this, and immediately, you ready for this? And immediately he proclaimed Christ in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. This is the message. This is the mystery of the Old Testament. He is the Son of God. And, and do you know what happened? After that first ministry effort of brand new Christian, baby Christian, Saul of Tarsus, who would be called Paul, verse 23 says, and the Jews plotted to kill him. I mean, how's that for your first attempt at ministry? That's why when we have our interns come on for the summer, we give them their first job is things like uh, arrange for the porta potties to show up at the picnic. Probably not much danger there. For Paul, he preached, and immediately the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, we might chalk that up to a rookie mistake. I mean, if it were me, I would have written in my journal, quote, first ministry strategy, failure. God has closed the door. Let's strategize for something that works better. And that's not how Paul responded. He didn't have any question. There was no question in his mind that the preaching of the gospel was his ministry, regardless of how people respond. And so repeatedly, as he traveled, he would teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath, find himself ostracized by the leading Jews. Occasionally, he would be flogged, at which point he would turn to the Gentiles and then move on to the next city, where the strategy would begin and be repeated. So let's, let's summarize this. Preach Christ be rejected, get beaten, move along. Preach Christ, be rejected, get beaten, move along. And as we heard in Sunday school this morning, um, when Paul came to Thessalonica, a riot broke out. Why? What did he do? All he did was preach that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of Messiah. That's all he did. And a riot broke out. And it seems like riots were always breaking out around Paul. In fact, Winston Churchill famously said, he, well, this is kind of a quip on his part. He asked himself, why is it that whenever the apostle Paul spoke, a riot broke out? And every time I speak, they serve tea. In Philippi, he was beaten and then imprisoned. In Thessalonica, he was, a riot broke out. He was repeatedly scourged or flogged in the synagogues. He was often beaten with rods. By the way, I found an account written by a victim of flogging many years later, and this is how he described it. The first dozen strokes were like jagged wires tearing furrows in my flesh and the second dozen 
seem like the filling of the furrows with molten lead. And that was only 24 lashes. He would be lashed all the way up to 40 minus 1. 39 lashes. And Paul says he experienced that not once, but five times. Five times. Can you imagine? When he says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus, he meant it literally. He had scars on his back. What I want you to see, beloved, is that this was not simply bad luck for Paul. It was his strategy. It was his strategy for reaching the world with the gospel, taking risks that might very well cause him personal harm. And he points to that fact in his first letter to the Corinthians. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. As you're turning there, consider this. I don't think you're turning there. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians 15. As you're turning, think of this. What if you come to the end of your life and discover that there's no God, no life after death? What then? If there is no resurrection, does your life make any sense? In his book, Desiring God, John Piper tells the story of a Cistercian abbot. Uh, that would be like a Catholic monk, the Cistercian order. He was being interviewed in on Italian television. The interviewer was especially interested in the Cistercian's tradition of living in silence and solitude, and so he asked the abbot, here's the question, and what if you were to realize at the end of your life that atheism is true and there is no God? Tell me, what if it were true? The abbot replied, holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves. Even without promise of reward, I still will have used my life well. That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? It might strike us as a beautiful sentiment. But if we ask the Apostle Paul the same question, his answer would be the exact opposite. Now, how do I know that his answer would be the exact opposite. Well, he has answered this question, and it is the exact opposite. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Take that, newscaster. Put that on television. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You have wasted your life. Paul didn't imagine for a moment that a life sitting around in a monastery contemplating one's navel should be considered a life well lived. He believed with all of his heart that the risen Christ he met on the road to Damascus was the same who would raise him to eternal life and eternal reward. As far as he is concerned, his life didn't make any sense apart from 
the promise of resurrection. If you're still in 1 Corinthians 15, look down at verse 30. Paul asks, and why are we in danger every day if there's no resurrection? So the implication here is, I'm choosing this. I choose to live like this. I choose to take risks. What sense is there in that? Why are we in danger every day? That's stupid if there is no resurrection. He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus as Lord. I die every day. What's he mean by that? Obviously, it's, he didn't actually die. But he was prepared to die every day. And there was at least one occasion where everybody thought he was dead. And there were a thousand other instances, perhaps, where he could have died because his suffering was so bad. At one point, as he was defending his apostleship in 1 Corinthians, he offered a short catalog of his sufferings. You're familiar with this. Labors, imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was at drift on the sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. How's that for a job resume or a job description? Would you put in your resume? Paul didn't have that luxury. Jesus didn't accept his resume. He just arrested him. To what does one appeal to make sense of such a life? One thing, resurrection. Paul at one point said, I am convinced that the glory that is set aside for us will surpass any sufferings that we may have experienced in this life. If the Sadducees were right and there is no resurrection, verse 33, he says this, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now don't misunderstand that. He's not saying let's, be, let's all be drunkards and gluttons. What he's saying is, eat, drink, just carry on your, your typical, comfortable, American lifestyle. Go home and watch the game. Lawful. It's lawful. It's not against the Bible. Go home and have a wonderful meal. Not against the Bible. Play ball with the kids. Go do frisbee at the frisbee golf or whatever it is. Go watch a movie. It's lawful. Eat. Drink. Be a normal, evangelical 
Christian. And the question is, beyond that, does, does the resurrection make the promise of resurrection make any difference? In the way we live, Paul's not encouraging us to be drunkards and gluttons. He's encouraging us by his example and by other clear statements in the New Testament that comfort is not the highest calling in this life. And you shouldn't assess your life by how comfortable God has made it be. This is a scary thought because most of us are in fact just living for the normal comforts and pleasures of everyday life. We have little time for Christ and we rush through our Bible reading and we enjoy very little prayer. We hardly ever share our faith or experience the censure of unbelieving friends. Taking risks for the gospel, it's not even on our radar. Most of us live in such a way that is easily explained with no reference to the promise of resurrection. To be sure, there's nothing wrong with enjoying lawful comforts and pleasures. God has given us all things to, to enjoy. But the enjoyment of, of those things should not be the main thing. And by the way, even the Apostle Paul says, I know what it's like to abound and suffer. For Paul, the main thing was the exaltation of Christ regardless of personal cost. And yet it's more than that. Notice what Paul says in verse 24, back in Colossians. He writes, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, in my, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Now, what does filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions mean? What in the world is he saying? Well, we know what it doesn't mean. We know that it doesn't mean that somehow Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross was in any way insufficient, or that sinners must somehow make up the deficiency by their own meritorious works, which some Christian quote, air quote, Christian groups teach. As the author of Hebrews explains, we have been sanctified through the blood of Jesus once for all. Rather, I think Paul understands that there is a sense in which the resurrected Christ suffers when his people suffer. Let me say it again. There is a sense in which the resurrected Christ suffers when we suffer. Remember the words that Jesus said to Saul on the Damascus road. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? That's not what he said. Saul, why are you, pers why are you persecuting what? Me. Why are you persecuting me? When the church is persecuted, Christ is persecuted. When the church suffers, Christ suffers. 
But God has established a limit to that suffering, the suffering for his church. And one day he will return and put an end to all of that suffering. And I keep using the word suffering here because I don't want to overblow, even if, even if some of you young guys get really serious about this and, uh, and you experience a little suffering. It won't be martyrdom. I can almost guarantee. And not in Fort Worth. But you know what? There are people all over the world today, the Lord's Day, and yesterday, Sabbath. Do you know that all of the churches of, of Jesus in Israel worship on the Sabbath? And did you further know that while... Um, Israel, modern Israel, is friendly to Americans. They are hostile to Christ and his gospel. You want to find your way, find yourself on, a, on an unexpected airplane ride home from Israel? Try proselytizing. And there are Christians in Bangladesh and in northern Africa and in China who are being martyred for the sake of Christ. And we know in the book of Revelation that there will be a limit. There is in the mind of God an exact number of them. And when the last has finally crossed over, it will be done. And we may not be called to be martyrs, and we need to be careful not to make much of our suffering. But we do need to be faithful. Until he comes, faithful believers around the world who suffer for the sake of Christ and his church are, as it were, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Think of it this way. The enemies of Christ were not satisfied with Christ's death. They hated Jesus with an insatiable hatred and wanted to add to his afflictions if they could. And Paul was on the receiving end of persecution that was intended for Christ. And the amazing thing is, he welcomed it. It's not that Paul liked suffering or sought to intentionally provoke it, but when it came, he rejoiced. In fact, even as Paul was writing these words, to the Colossians, you know where he was? In Rome, in jail. This was not theoretical for him. It wasn't academic. You see, Peter, I mean, Paul wasn't ashamed of Jesus or his gospel. To the contrary, he longed for a kind of intimate fellowship with Christ and with the church that can only be experienced when they themselves follow Christ and suffer. To the Philippians, Paul famously cried out, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in what? His sufferings. His sufferings. Being conformed 
to him in his death. Now I suspect there's a kind of intimate and personal fellowship reserved for those who find joy in not only knowing and believing in Christ, but also suffering for his sake. In fact, in my travels overseas, especially in Central Asia, I've met uh, no, no small number of men and women who have suffered. And they remain. They remain faithful. They remain true. Women whose church-planting husbands have been executed. One man I know who lives in a, and a number of us know, who lives in a Muslim village and was born there and they are the only Christians in the village. And they don't leave. And he's bold with the gospel. And they respect him. But they could kill him at any time. We know very little, and perhaps nothing, of this kind of suffering. Here's the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 6.10 this kind of lifestyle, he names it like this, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul, how can you live with the sorrow, with the pain, with the rejection? And to which he answers, sorrowful, yes, but always rejoicing. And this was something the disciples had known before Paul's conversion. After being beaten by the Sanhedrin, you remember, in Jerusalem, for proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, Acts 5.41 reads, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This is how Paul lived. But it's not a lifestyle reserved exclusively for Paul. It's at least at some level for us. And so we talked about Paul's call to take risks and suffer joyfully for Christ. Now let's think about the fact that we are called to take risks and suffer joyfully for Christ. Consider the following scriptures, Matthew 16, 24. This is Jesus speaking. He says, if anyone would come after me. Now, what does that tell us? It means whatever he's going to say is not apostolic. It's not reserved for those 11 men. If anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You say, well... My cross is my, my spouse. <laughs> no. That's not, your, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about bearing the reproach of Christ in your own life. Being willing to suffer shame for the gospel. And for some, in some places in the world, it means... Lay down your life. Matthew 8, 25. 
Jesus says, if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, that would be Satan, how much more the members of his household? How many of you are members of Christ's household? This applies to you. If, if you are being faithful with the gospel, if you are taking risks for the gospel, not looking for trouble, not trying to become a martyr, not trying to exalt your sufferings in front of other people, but rather just seeking to be faithful by taking risks when you have opportunity, then you have cause for rejoice, rejoicing. Because just as they called your master the son of the devil, so they will call you one who is of the devil. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, in case there's still any lingering doubt that we too are called to suffer. The apostle Paul, writing to his protege Timothy, he writes, Indeed, all who desire to live godly... Now, who is he speaking to? The apostles? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that tells us something. It tells us something. It implies something. The word persecution at the end of this statement is a qualifier. It, it kind of tells us the kind of life he's talking about. And we think, in our minds, I'm seeking to live a godly life. I'm actively pursuing it. Well, tell me, how are you actively pursuing a godly life? I'm here at church. I read my Bible yesterday. I listened to Christian music instead of country. Or, never mind, I'm not, <laughs> not going there, just... Now, what do you do that makes you feel godly? I, I give money in the church. Okay? You know what? The Pharisees did all of that. Did all of that. What makes us different? What makes Christians, true Christians, different than religious unbelievers? It, it gets hard when so many of us are, are here and we act like Christians, we look like Christians, we dress like Christians. We love to sing the songs, and the songs are wonderful, and we should be. We have a command to sing praises unto God. We do. But there is one mark of a true believer, one mark that we hardly ever talk about because it makes us really, really uncomfortable. And because we don't talk about it, we don't do it. And there is no pressure from the community to be faithful in this way. And here's why. Because we have not chosen to live this way. And I am not just preaching to you. It starts with the elders of our church. It starts with me. This is what God has called us to. 
What I'm after this morning is, is not that you would go out of here and manufacture some way to get persecuted. Rather, what I hope for is that we collectively and personally would consider the possibility that God's highest goal for you is not comfort, happiness, and ease. And by the way, if that's the, if, if that's the case for our lives, it will be reflected in our prayers. Lord, I'm, I'm, I got a quiver in my liver. Would you resolve that for me? Would you, Lord, I got a pain in my back. Would you, I mean, it's your job. Come, touch my back. Lord, my car is broken down. I can't afford it. Lord, would you, would you supply? I mean, it's really uncomfortable to have to walk or take the bus with those people. You see the kind of thinking? God's highest goal for us is not that we would retire, buy an RV, and collect seashells for the duration of our time on earth. Rather, he's calling us to understand that the, here's a key phrase, the normal Christian life involves risk-taking that may very well result in personal suffering. That's all I'm saying. I want to see a church that has the spirit of men like Adoniram Judson who lived in an age when, so far as he knew, no one had even thought about going out of North America to reach the lost. And no organization existed that would help support someone to leave America for a foreign mission. And you know what Adnaram Judson's response to that was? Who cares if it's never been done before? This is what God wants us to do. And so he began thinking, why should not I be a foreign missionary to one of these remote parts of the world as yet unreached by the gospel? Notice the question, why not me? Never mind that nobody knows how to do it. Or the spirit of John Patton, probably Peyton, Scottish pastor turned missionary to the New Hebrides. When he told his Scottish congregation, he was their pastor, that he was leaving to take the gospel to those dangerous islands in the Pacific. His congregation was aghast. They had heard about the New Hebrides. And one old Christian approached him in that meeting, trying to dissuade him from becoming a fanatic like that, perhaps. And, and this is his appeal. Pastor Peyton, the cannibals, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. To which John Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you 
that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, think resurrection, in that great day, my resurrected body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. These guys had moxie. I think of Martin Luther. I mean, just pick any part of his story and insert it in the sermon. When he sat down to write A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he included the following lyrics. And we do ourselves a disservice when we sing that song and don't remind ourselves that he was the leader of a persecuted church. And so, being the leader of a persecuted church, he's writing a song of worship to God. Here's what he says. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. By the way, it's fell, not fail. One little word shall fell him. And you're supposed to ask the question, what word? That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And the hope is, the confidence, confident assurance is, we will be in that kingdom. Now, I was thinking about these historic missionaries, and then I got thinking about people that I know. I think of Eric Mock, who gave up his career working for the international, on the International Space Station. In his house, he's got this great picture of him standing on the launch pad in front of the, uh, the solid rocket booster. And he had the life. And he gave it up. And became a, you know, with the space station, he was working with the Russians. When he got saved, he left all of that. Didn't know where God was going to lead him. Joined a church. They found out he's been working with the Russians, and they said, would you be the head of our mission committee? And he said, I have a question. What is missions? He knew nothing. He just knew that wherever God called him, he was ready to go. And now he works with Slavic Gospel Association, supporting the churches all over the former Soviet Union. And, and we have the privilege, we, many of us, had the privilege of going and seeing the work and participating in the work. And that's, by the way, where I was a few weeks ago in Ukraine and in Israel with Slavic Gospel Association. I think of Shannon Hurley, who was a successful, surprisingly, uh, nobody more surprised than himself that he became a successful young businessman. 
but he gave up his career to move his family to Uganda to establish SOS Ministries, to which many of us have gone, and one of our families lived there for six years. Or, or Wayne Mack, the guy who introduced me to the reality that the Word of God speaks to every issue of the human heart, who at 70 years of age came to me one day and said, hey, I'm only going to be able to teach you a while longer, because, and then Carol and I are going to have to quit. And I asked him, is it, is it because of your health? And he said, no. Okay, 70, right? Just get that in your mind. 70 years old. He said, no, uh, Carol and I believe God wants us to move to Africa. Are you kidding me? I think of a young single woman who met a couple of girls in um, McDonald's and left McDonald's and thought, I should have said something. And turned around and went back in, plopped down next to them and asked, do you know Jesus? Shared the gospel with them. One of them has visited Calvary at least once. This is risk-taking. It's not rocket surgery. <laughs> it's it's risk-taking. It, it's, it's part of a strategic life. All of these men and their wives and children choose the hard path of risk-taking that occasionally leads to suffering for which they confidently rejoice. I've seen on occasion where Eric Mock sharing the gospel on an airplane only to find a hostile audience, which is really awkward in an airplane, <laughs> especially when your flight is 12 hours. So what about you? Is God calling you to leave the comfort of the United States to minister in a foreign land? Maybe not. As far as I know, he's not calling me to do that yet. Maybe when I'm 70. Which isn't far away. <laughs> Is he calling you to join the men and women who go downtown on Friday nights? To talk to people they don't know and may never see again? About the gospel? That's strategic risk. You're, you're going to risk getting your feelings hurt. Get over it. There are bigger things. Like Jesus. Like the resurrection. Is he calling you to reach out to your neighbors and risk sharing Jesus with them, perhaps inviting them over to your house for dinner and then to church? I mean, you're going to have to live next to them Maybe for a long time, and, and maybe that's why you haven't done it. Take the risk. It's normal for Christians who follow Jesus to take the risk. Is he calling you to set up a conversation with an adult sibling, simply to talk to them about Jesus, knowing they'll probably reject it, and you? And some of you are called to leave the comforts of Calvary Bible Church to help Living Hope Bible Church. And um, 
You probably should have already done that. And I don't know who you are, but I hope you'll go. We'll miss you. And the Lord will bless you. You say, I don't know what it's going to be like down there. It just, I mean, they don't have as nice a campus. They got this big giant field they're not doing anything with right now. I mean, yeah, they're like a BB in a boxcar. They're just kind of there. They got all this property. And, it, and it's not like it. We don't have, we don't have all these instruments. And, we, you know, it's, the carpet's blue instead of red. <laughs> they're probably saying the same thing. The carpet up there is red instead of blue. Like, why won't you go? And many of you are going to follow Keith and Matt out on a plant to church, to plant a Christ Fellowship Bible Church. And you know what? I say, praise God for you. And for you, Keith, Matt. And for all of you who are willfully sending them and participating in sending them, there is coming a day not eschatologically, but very practically, when you will walk into this church, Calvary Bible Church, and look around and realize you just suddenly lost 80 of your friends. It's only a few months away. Do you know why we do that? This is the normal Christian life. We take risks. This is a risk. I mean, think about it. Keith, Keith leaves to pastor a different church. If it fails, he can't come back. <laughs> I mean, to visit, maybe. <laughs> but it's sobering, isn't it? It's sobering. These are the risks. And you know what? There's Brent Osterberg, who took that same risk. And hopefully one day, uh, Randy Barlow will take that risk. Who knows? And here's the thing, as Brent would say, yeah, but Jesus is worth it. <laughs> That's what Paul would say. He's worthy of the risk. He's worthy of your suffering. He's worthy of your discomfort. He's worthy of all the praise and thanksgiving that you will render to him on that day when you realize that he used it, used your risk-taking and potential suffering to glorify God the Father and to edify his church. There are 10,000 ways to take personal risks for Christ. Oh, Calvary Bible Church, don't be ashamed of the gospel or of Jesus, your Redeemer. Why would you be ashamed of the gospel? Or of Jesus, your Redeemer? Don't be ashamed. Go with him outside the camp. Bear his suffering with him. And I would just say to you, we will never be the church that we need to be in this generation, until we choose to take risks that can only be explained by the resurrection of the dead. I love Calvary Bible Church. I think there's an awful lot of biblical stuff going on here. And I don't decry any of that. We need more of that. But we don't need more of that if we're not going to take risks to get there. Now, I don't know what risk... God might be calling me to. I don't know what 
next risk God may be calling you to. But are you open to that? There's a family in this church, I know they'll be embarrassed if I mention them. I'm going to do it anyway, but not call them by name. They told me the other day, you know, the reason we came to Calvary Bible Church, we were sitting at home one day and we said, we're too comfortable, Lord. We're too comfortable. What do you want us to do? They ended up moving to Fort Worth. They found Calvary Bible Church. After a while, they said, Lord, we're getting awfully comfortable again, and that's, that's a little worrisome. What should we do? And so they adopted. And then after a while, they started saying, Lord, we're awfully comfortable here again. What do you want us to do? And I stood in the pulpit and said, we're going to plant another church. Him and his wife looked at each other and went, that's what we're going to do. This is the normal Christian life. And if we are not living, taking risks for the glory of God, then we are abnormal as far as Paul is concerned. We are in some way deficient in how we are living out the gospel. We'll never know what the Lord could have done in our lives and in this church, if we never live with this mindset, Lord, wherever you lead, I'll follow. Whatever you ask me to do, I'll do. Whatever risk you want me to take, I'll take it. Just let Jesus Christ be praised. Let's pray. Lord, we have some growing to do in our church. And um, we can't do it without you. We can't manufacture this. But I pray, I pray, Lord, as the weeks and months after today go by, we will hear many stories, perhaps from other people, about how members of Calvary Bible Church risked and sacrificed for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Father, put it in our hearts like a burning fire and use it to ignite worship in our hearts for Jesus that perhaps we've rarely known. We need your grace to do that. Lord, you are the vine. We are the branches. Unless you give us the life to do it, we won't do it. And even if we choose to obey, even that is a gift. So help us, Father, to receive the gift of risk and sacrifice for our own rejoicing, we pray. Amen.